0: Hello, and welcome to The Food Podcast, a show where personal stories are shared through the lens of food, and specifically today, through the lens of the muscle, the double S edible kind. I'm Lindsay Cameron Wilson. The city of Halifax is a peninsula shaped like a bumpy, crooked nose that points towards the North Atlantic. Point Pleasant Park, once the site of an 18th century military battery, stretches around the tip of this nose. If you stand on the edge of the park, you'll see the Atlantic lapping at your toes, a container pier to the left, and in the summer months, sailboats circling in the wind to the right. The air carries damp salt, the kind that gets in your hair and coats your skin. Most mornings I walk through the park with Dottie, our yellow lab. She likes it best down on the waterfront, where she charges across the rocky beach towards the ducks bobbing peacefully in the waves. My feet crunch behind her. I step on kelp, folded like long lasagna noodles between the rocks. There are empty mussel shells scattered around too either carried in by the waves or dropped by seagulls after they've eaten the sweet meat inside. The asymmetrical shells are a glossy, deep blue, sometimes a tortoiseshell brown pattern or jet black. But inside the shells are silvery gray and nacreous. I love that word, nacreous, from the noun nacre, another word for mother of pearl the silvery shimmering coating on the inside of the shell. More on that later. This episode is all about the wonder of this shellfish, the mussel. We'll explore its beauty, resilience, innovation, taste, in the various ways the mussel has provided answers for food scarcity here on the East Coast of Canada and throughout the world. And we'll look at the mark they've made on me From the jobs I've had to what I've learned from them, these little bivalves, on this episode of The Food Podcast. Floating in the Atlantic, not far from where the sea turtles a few episodes back feed off jellyfish in the summertime, are black buoys bobbing in the ocean off Prince Edward Island. Long ropes dangle from these buoys, flowing with the tide. Attached to these ropes are mussels, or marine bivalve mollusks, living, eating, and growing. They sway there all year in the ocean, first attached to ropes when they are tiny seeds, then in tubular socks as they grow to maturity, ebbing to and fro in freezing temperatures in the winter, to warm, swimmable temperatures in August. Prince Edward Island is known for Anne of Gables, potato farming, red mud, lobster dinners, and long, beautiful beaches, and for cultivating mussels. Eighty percent of Canada's mussel production is cultivated in and around the inlets and bays of PEI. I've had many jobs in the food world over the years, and definitely one of the most colorful, flavorful jobs would have to be the ones involving mussels. I was hired way back when by PEI Mussels to encourage people to cook mussels at home. They're a sustainable protein, perhaps the most sustainable, and they're affordable and tasty and so easy to cook. But many people, especially here in the Maritime Provinces, eat them only in restaurants and hardly ever at home. It's a strange phenomenon, so I tried to change that. I did trade shows, muscle videos, demonstrations. I can't believe I haven't talked about this before. It was a flavorful, busy time in my life. When the kids were little and I was writing about food, but mostly I was working as a food stylist, a recipe developer. And I did cooking demonstrations with mussels. Picture me in Chef's White standing in a booth at a trade show in a convention center. I think it was a cottage life show in Toronto, where there were boats and mobile cottages and Adirondack chairs and cast iron fire pits and hand-forged marshmallow roasting sticks. And there we were in the midst of it, Maritimers, cooking mussels. Is it called complementary product placement in the marketing world? Where there's a delightful surprise that you're not expecting to see, but it makes sense. There are a few portable induction stoves in front of me, two big soup pots, coolers filled with bags of mussels on ice, fresh from the ocean. I rinse a two-pound bag and tip it into a hot pot. The shells are closed tightly, a good sign. If there were any open shells, i toss them away. I add white wine, chopped red onions, a good glug of Thai sweet chili sauce, and a handful of chopped fresh cilantro, and a few wedges of lime. Then I put the lid on. That's it. The mussels are steaming in just a splash of white wine. You don't want them to boil, I tell the hungry, curious crowd in front of me. You know they're ready when the steam starts escaping from around the rim of the lid. I lift the lid, and there it is, a pot filled with open mussels and that sweet, spicy smell of a Thai-inspired recipe. I spoon them into little serving cups, three mussels per cup. Then the pot is empty, and I make more. And so it goes. I am grateful for the squishy Dansko chef clogs on my feet. Those were long days. My first job with PEI Muscles before the demos was to host a series of how-to cooking videos. I don't think I had talked to the camera before that job. But something happens when you've just had a baby and you have two toddlers at home and you say yes and you don't question it and you get the job done. I think that's what happened that day. Chef Lindsay Cameron Wilson, and we are ready to cook up some tasty blue mussels. They're fast and very easy to prepare. Let's get going. That was me 13 years ago. I wore a white chef's jacket and I introduced myself as a chef, which is contentious because I trained as a chef, but I never worked as a chef. I'm really a cook. And I think that's been weighing on me. Anyway, I taught the viewer what to look for when buying mussels, how to clean them, and how to store them in the fridge for a few days if you're not using them right away. Tip them into a bowl. It's important to remember to never store them in fresh water or in a sealed container, just with a damp cloth over top. and This will keep them fresh, and then you just put them in the fridge. While in the fridge. We filmed those videos in my mother-in-law Rose's kitchen. She was on a trip, I think to India, probably taking pictures of the Taj Mahal or sipping masala chai as I steamed mussels on her kitchen island cooktop. She has the perfect TV kitchen, bright, creamy walls, a kitchen island where I could face towards the camera and a fridge behind me so I could turn with ease and put that bowl of rinsed mussels topped with a damp tea towel back in her very clean fridge. Hair and makeup was done in her living room. I perched on Rose's pink sofa. That was my favorite part. Thirteen years ago, I had just given birth to my third child, Rex. Anyone caring for me by simply brushing my hair or gently smoothing concealer under my tired eyes with a soft sponge was enough to make me cry with gratitude. I remember someone in the crew walking my infant son up and down Rose's Road during takes and popping in when he needed to feed. It takes a village to create muscle videos. It also takes a village to cultivate muscles. All these years and many pots of mussels later, I realized I didn't really know how cultivation happens. A question I probably didn't have the capacity for with a third baby on my hip. But now there's more space for these questions, these curiosities. So I reached out to Tiago Hori, the Director of Innovation at Atlantic Aqua Farms on Prince Edward Island. Tiago, originally from Brazil, has a master's in biochemistry and a Ph.D. in biology. He could tell me how muscle cultivation works on PEI, and I apologize for the scratchy audio.
1: There are two main ways how muscles are cultivated around the world. One is in uh, long lines and suspended ropes or socks, uh, and the other one is the French way, which is in... Um, wooden poles in tidal areas and so here uh, in, in Canada in general we collect wild seeds so we wait until the muscle reproduce in the environment which happens between the end of the spring and early summer and then throughout the summer they will grow from these microscopic Uh, free-swimming larvae into tiny, tiny mussels. And when they become the tiny, tiny mussels, which is literally just a tiny version of what you eat, they attach to a surface that is near to them. So we deploy ropes uh, in the base and the seed attaches to those ropes. Then we take them off of those ropes and then we put them in what we call a sock, which is basically a plastic sleeve that contains the mussels until they can grow and um, reattach to that substrate. Those ropes are deployed in long lines across the base in PEI, and then we grow them for about two years to get them to commercial uh, size here.
0: Muscle shells have growth lines like rings on a tree. The farther apart the rings, the faster the muscle is growing. When the rings are tight together, it's a sign that growth has been arrested. There are two reasons for this. Both are reminders that mussels are filter feeders. They take all their food from the ocean, from algae and microplankton. Mussels are not fed by farmers, so when it's cold in winter, when the bay freezes over, there's not a lot of food. So slowing down is a good option.
1: There is very little plankton in the water um, because the plankton requires um, sun to multiply, and so the ice will reduce the penetrance of of sun into the bay. But also because it's very cold, right? And so their metabolism, um, their just reproduction or cell division is very uh, slow. Uh, but also because about, uh, below below a, salt, a certain temperature, which is around five degrees, it's so cold that the muscles will actually shut up, shut down, and stop filtering to protect themselves from from uh, freezing temperatures. And and then they're not eating at all.
0: They stay alive but shut down. It seems like in The Empire Strikes Back. When Han Solo was frozen in carbonite, but he wasn't frozen, they say. He was conscious, awake, just not functioning.
1: They are quite incredible animals, right? So, you know, it's not just the fact that they attach, but they live in intertidal areas and they're exposed to extreme, extreme conditions, right? So a muscle can be under the, you know, scalding sun for three or four hours um a day and that would kill most aquatic animals and yet they sit there and they live and then they are suddenly covered with water which causes uh, reoxygenation immediate reoxygenation that's very dangerous so that's for example what ruins um organ transplanting so if you perfuse an organ very fast you reoxygenate so fast that that will actually damage the tissue The same thing is true with mussels. If you reperfuse them with water too fast, they would also be damaged. But somehow they have a mechanism to control that and they resist. I mean, they'll survive the desiccation for over two, three weeks. We've frozen mussels for, you know, four months and put them in water and some of them are alive. They're just, you know, just incredible animals, bivalves in general.
0: You all know that I was lit up by the wonder of sea turtles a few episodes ago. I can't stop with the wonder of marine science. In late March, I was in my kitchen listening to On Being and host Krista Tippett was interviewing Janine Benyus, a biologist, author and innovation consultant. She says she may not have coined the term biomimicry, but she popularized it with her 1997 book, Biomimicry, Innovation Inspired by Nature. Bio is a Greek root word meaning life, and mimic is to imitate. Biomimicry is all about imitating life. Janine Benyus is the co-founder of the Biomimicry Institute, where they are dedicated to making biology a natural part of the design process. Her clients include Boeing, Colgate-Palmolive, Nike, General Electric, Herman Miller, and Levi's. Benyus explained, in the most poetic, gentle way, examples of biomimicry. From the most famous, the discovery of Velcro by Swiss engineer George de Mestrel, after examining the cockle burrs that stuck to his pant leg and his dog's fur, to the waterproof epoxy that mussels create to tether themselves to rocks and ropes. Mussels make their own waterproof epoxy? I ordered Benyus's book. And there it was, starting on page 117, a whole chapter devoted to mussels, where Benyas visits the Atlantic Ocean in winter and travels out to what she calls the salty terrene of life to see how, quote, a small blue mussel uses a waterproof adhesive to attach itself to solid objects in turbulent tides. When I was little, most of the mussels we ate grew on rocks near the sandy bottom of the ocean. They had hairy beards and barnacles that had to be scrubbed off in the kitchen sink. Now most of the mussels we eat are cultivated on ropes and scrubbed clean of their beards at the processing plant before they reach our tables. We don't see the beards often anymore, but they look like tiny clusters of Spanish moss hanging from the narrow end of the mussel. Tangled and textured and full of stories. The beards are fine threads called byssus, about two centimeters long, and the mussels use them to attach to something solid. In rope cultured mussel farming, mussels attach themselves to ropes that are purposely frayed, creating lots of surface area for mussels to attach themselves. Some farmers use old lobster fishing lines, naturally frayed by years of salt and friction. I should add here that Janine Benyus's chapter on bisis is called Bis as Usual. She's a funny scientist. I asked Diego about these magically waterproof sticky beards and why muscles tether themselves to things in the first place. He says it has to do with protection. Muscles can't run or change their color or hide.
1: That's why they colonize rocks, right? Naturally uh, muscles happen in colonies that are tight populated in rock surfaces because there's literally strength in numbers.
0: And then we get into the making of the beards, the business as usual.
1: So the attachment, muscle attachment or shellfish attachment in general is quite a unique biological process. So they have an organ that is called the foot. Um and it's the organ is mainly called the foot because, especially in muscles, the what they use to crawl uh, and kind of find the right substrate. So, so that foot produces a se- series of proteins uh, that have uh, adhesive uh, properties. So they assemble into these threads um, that are called muscle thread, uh, more commonly known as the muscle beard. Um, so these, these beast threads have two main characteristics. They're both tensile and also adhesive. So the bottom end of them forms what we call a plaque or a plate and that's what attaches to the environment. And then the thread itself is made of these long proteins that allow the animal to kind of uh, move slightly under pressure from the waves and from the currents, but not de-attach. And So because it's tensile, it reduces the, um, the stress on the actual attachment uh, region because it allows a certain number, uh, amount of movement. It's a little bit like the metaphor of the bamboo, right? If you're too rigid, uh, you're going to end up breaking up under the wind, right? It's kind of the same idea. So if you're too kind of stuck there, you actually are more susceptible to have breakage on that system. Uh, the bissel treads actually allow a certain level of, uh, tensile movement that then protects them. And, and again, there is, there is, uh, uh, strength in numbers, right? The more muscles there are together, that kind of spreads the, the wave shock around, um, around these animals, but obviously what is of great interest in terms of biotechnology is that these proteins that are adhesive in muscles uh, work in the water, right? So it's a waterproof adhesive, which is very hard, if not uh, unknown to exist uh, in common use uh, right now. Uh, And so there are many people trying to reproduce the way these proteins are synthesized, uh, synthesize them in vitro to produce um, uh, waterproof or glues or glues that work in wet environments uh, and specifically submerged environments. Uh, so where whatever you're trying to attach would be fully submerged constantly. Uh, and so that's kind of what, you know, the, bio kind of material world is very interested in in, in the muscle foot in general just because of that specific property.
0: The code for waterproof adhesive may not have been cracked by humans yet, but can we look to muscles in the meantime as a way of living? Can biomimicry be achieved philosophically? I want to be strong yet tensile like a bissel thread or a big muscle beard, holding on tight to a lifeline while simultaneously flowing with the tide. The mussel shell has three layers. We've talked about the beautiful mother-of-pearl interior, the nacre. The middle layer is called the prismatic layer, made up of chalky white crystals of calcium carbonate in a protein matrix. The top outermost layer is called the periotactum. It's pigmented and composed of a protein called conchin. What's important here is that mussels use carbon to build their shells, so they trap carbon and never release it. This makes their shells a carbon-negative food source, and it makes for a beautiful shell as well. My friend Heather Wapitz is a ceramic artist. She is from the eastern shore of Nova Scotia. You can see the shore from the pointy nose of Point Pleasant Park. Heather is a beachcomber and a hiker. Her home is filled with forage installations. This time of year, I imagine there are spring branches in her white ceramic vases just about to bloom. Her work is also inspired by nature. There are delicate bone plates, gently folded porcelain leaves, fat seed pods, and my favorite, a series inspired by the black, wet slate shores of Eastern Passage, close to where she lives. In the collection are mussel shells, just like what I would find on the beach, underfoot with Dottie. In Janice Spanius' book Biomimicry, she writes that nature manages to craft materials of a complexity and a functionality that we can only envy. The inner shell of a sea creature is twice as tough as our high-fired ceramics. Spider silk, ounce for ounce, is five times stronger than steel. Muscle adhesive works underwater and sticks to anything, even without a primer. But Heather still looks to nature, despite limitations. I ask her how she makes her
2: muscle shells, and this is what she said. I have a process of making by feeling and intuition. Living by the sea, I have collected seashells, especially mussel shells, my whole life since I was little. The feel and shape of those smooth interiors I know by heart. Recreating mussel shells, I use porcelain clay, smooth and translucent. I gently fold black mason stain into white porcelain clay kneading it till the color is black and pliable with a bit of water. I need to form my shelves fast as porcelain dries and sets up the fastest of clays. Eight minutes in a cool room, cutting and shaping each shell using a single shell to form a single shell. After 20 minutes, I release the clay, curve lines. I see and feel when totally dry, which is about five days, and cured. I sponge the edges thin, re-sculpting to get those razor-sharp edges. Bisque firing at 1920 degrees. Then three days later, when the kiln has cooled, I sand, glaze the shells with three layers of blue-black glazes, then glaze fire at 2340 degrees Fahrenheit. Another three days, I unload these shell sculptures, close my eyes, and feel for the smooth interior. Thin itches, soft curves, as I've always done. I'm no writer. I do know one thing, I only make what I know.
0: I know that if we keep looking, touching, tasting, and knowing, We'll all get closer to the mussel. Thank you to Tiago Hori from Atlantic Aqua Farms. We'll put a link in the show notes to everything we've mentioned, including that recipe for the sweet Thai chili mussels. This series is edited by Abby Circatella. Our theme song, One More Night, is by the prolific Jen Grant. Please rate and review the Food Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And consider signing up for my newsletter. It's called Food Stories. The link is in the show notes. Or you can head to lindsaycameronwilson.substack.com. Thanks for listening. I'm Lindsay Cameron Wilson.